The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. The Public Environment and Access Committees and the Transportation Committees are proud to present this afternoon PROAG, Public Rights of Way Accessibility Guidelines, Demystified. Whether you travel with a cane or with a guide dog, these guidelines are required for all of us to travel safely. Today, we will be hearing from the Access Board's Sarah Presley, who will tell us what is included in the PROAG and update us on where the Department of Transportation and the Department of Justice are in formally adopting the Access Board's recommendations. Sarah Presley is an accessibility specialist with the Access Board. Sarah provides technical assistance and training on design standards and accessible buildings for accessible buildings and facilities and accessibility rights of way. <laughs> Sorry. Before joining the Access Board, Sarah served as a reasonable accommodations coordinator at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Sarah previously worked at the D.C. Department on Disability Services as a vocational rehabilitation specialist and at the U.S. Census Bureau as a statistician. Sarah Presley also served, I love this part, in the Peace Corps in Morocco as an English instructor at a school for students who are blind. She holds a master's degree in rehabilitation counseling from George Washington University. At this time, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Sarah Presley. And Sarah is going to address us for around 45 minutes, at which time we will entertain questions from the audience here in person and also those of you on Zoom. I uh, neglected to introduce myself. <laughs> I'm Sheila Styron. I'm chair currently of ACB's Transportation Committee. And also up here at the front table with Sarah and myself is Becky Davidson, who is the chairperson for the Pedestrian Environmental Access Committee. We also have co-chairs. Mine is Claire Stanley and Becky's is Sue Crawford. So now we are going to hear from Sarah Presley about Everything going on at the Access Board. Welcome, Sarah. Yeah, maybe not everything, but we'll start with ProAg. <laughs> well, the stuff we care okay. about. Yeah, the important stuff, right? Okay, so yeah, I am what I would call the ProAg apprentice. I have coworkers that have been working on ProAg for 22 years. It's been around for quite a while. And I will give you a status of the Public Rights of Way Accessibility Guidelines. So I'm going to start with a status of the Public Rights of Way Accessibility Guidelines. Hereafter to be called PROAG, P-R-O-W-A-G. The Access Board is working to finalize the PROAG, aiming to complete the rule in the fall of 2022. And once the Access Board finishes its work, the finalized PROAG must be adopted by a standard setting agency, such as the Department of Justice or the Department of Transportation in order for these guidelines to become enforceable standards. Once adopted and implemented as enforceable standards, PROAG will apply to the construction and alteration of facilities covered by the ADA, by the ABA or the Architectural Barriers Act, which is for federal facilities, and the Rehabilitation Act, mainly section 504. Okay, so the current relevant standards and guidelines that we have that are kind of in effect now, the current enforceable standards under the ADA are the 2010 ADA standards for accessible design. And these primarily apply to sites, buildings, and facilities. For the public rights of way, we have the proposed PROAG, and we do currently have the proposed PROAG on our website. It is not the finalized version. It's the version that was last out for comment. And these guidelines were out for comment in 2011. That just tells you how long it's taken to get this done. <laughs> in 2011, and then in 2013, a supplemental notice of proposed rulemaking added 
accessibility guidelines for shared use paths to the proposed PROAG. So the final guidelines that we're working on now will include provisions for shared use paths. And I do want to point out here that even though PROAG is just guidelines right now, the public right-of-way is required to be accessible to persons with disabilities, mostly through Title II of the ADA, since most of the public right-of-way is owned by state or local jurisdictions. A lot of the public right-of-way is also covered through the Department of Transportation Section 504 regulations, since many public right-of-way improvement projects receive federal funds from the Department of Transportation. But it will certainly be helpful to have standards specifically for the public right-of-way instead of having to figure out how the ADA design standards for buildings and facilities would work with the public right-of-way or to just be using guidelines. So basically, you know, right now the public right-of-way is required to be accessible, but there's nothing telling people exactly what is required to make it accessible since we don't have the enforceable standards. They can either use the ADA standards or they can use the guidelines that we have now and say that that's how they're trying to do it, how to make it accessible. And many jurisdictions have written their standards for making the public right-of-way accessible based on the PROAG that's available right now. Okay, so what does PROAG cover? PROAG covers facilities for pedestrian circulation and use located in the public right-of-way. PROAG references the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices for Streets and Highways, hereafter to be called MUTCD, because who can say that? more than one time, <laughs> okay, the 2009 edition. And we'll see this when we get to accessible pedestrian signals. Almost everything in the, in the requirements for PROAG for pedestrian accessible signals comes from the MUTCD. And I do also want to point out here that I'm going to talk about require. I'm going to say that the PROAG requires, even though it's guidelines, it's just easier to say that, that, that it requires that and not have to keep pointing out that it's guidelines. Okay, much of compliance with the PROAG will be triggered by alterations since purely new construction of public right-of-way is pretty rare. It's rare nowadays to have a completely green field being developed into public right-of-way. So what is altered in the public right-of-way must be made accessible to the extent practicable within the scope of the project of the alteration. So you might end up with something getting fixed and getting altered and it could be surrounded by other stuff that's not compliant because that stuff wasn't altered and it wasn't within the scope of the alteration project. So what is required by PROAG? PROAG does not require pedestrian access routes unless pedestrian facilities are provided. If pedestrian facilities are provided, they are required to be accessible to and usable by people with disabilities. So what is this pedestrian access route that I just mentioned? The backbone of PROAG is the pedestrian access route. A pedestrian access route is a continuous and unobstructed path of travel provided for pedestrians with disabilities within or coinciding with a general pedestrian circulation path. So what makes the pedestrian access route accessible or what puts the access into the pedestrian access route? First, it has to have a minimum width. The base width for the pedestrian access route is 48 inches minimum. And this is excluding the curb. The width of the pedestrian access route that is passing through medians or refuge islands must be at least 60 inches wide minimum. And this is because this 60 inches is the very minimum space that it would, the width that you could have to have two wheelchairs pass. It's pretty tight. And of course, the wider, the better for any of this. Where the pedestrian access route is less than 60 inches wide, 
60 inch by 60 inch minimum passing spaces are required every 200 feet. And the required width for the pedestrian access route must be maintained around obstructions, for example, around bushes, newspaper boxes, utility poles, whatever. You can't say have your 48 inch minimum width and say, oh, but I'm gonna have a, a newspaper box protrude, you know, eight inches into it. No, the, the width has to be maintained all the way around that obstruction. Okay, now another thing that makes the route accessible is that, the, that it can't be too steep. And first we're gonna talk about running slope or grade. Running slope is the steepness of the route in the direction of travel. So in, within the street or highway right of way, the running slope must not exceed the general grade that has been established for that adjacent street or highway. In other words, the pedestrian access route can't be steeper than the adjacent road. If the pedestrian access route is not within street or highway right of way, the running slope must be 5% maximum, which really isn't very steep. Okay. And within pedestrian street crossings, the running slope must also be 5% maximum. Okay, now we're moving on to the cross slope. The cross slope is the steepness of the ground that is perpendicular to the direction of travel. So no cross slope is what is best for wheelchair users because obviously if you have some steepness in the direction, the direction that's perpendicular to the direction of travel, you're gonna be tipping to the side a little bit. So obviously no cross slope is best but some slope is needed for drainage. So a cross slope of 2% maximum is permitted. There are some exceptions for the cross slope in street crossings, but I will skip those for now unless somebody has some questions about them later. Okay, another thing that puts the access into the pedestrian access route is uh, compliant ground surfaces. The ground surface must be firm, stable, and slip resistant. If there are horizontal openings, they must not permit passage of a sphere greater than half an inch in diameter. And if there are elongated openings, they must have the long dimension perpendicular to the direction of travel. Obviously, if you have the long, the long dimension parallel to that direction of travel, it could cause issues for wheelchairs and probably for some canes too. And grade, ba grade breaks must be flush. This means that if, you know, where the curb ramp bottom meets the street, that, that connection must be flush. Okay, and then another thing about that makes the pedestrian access route accessible is not having abrupt changes in level. And when I'm talking about changes in level here, I'm mainly talking about stuff like, like cracks in the sidewalk. So a change in level up to a half an inch is permitted. The first quarter inch of that half inch or the first half of that half inch can be a vertical change in level. The next quarter of the half inch must be beveled with a slope no steeper than 50%. And that's it. That's pretty much the changes in level that you can have in the pedestrian access route. Okay, now that we've talked about the pedestrian access route, we're going to move on to alternate pedestrian access routes. So where pedestrian routes are closed, maybe due to construction, alternate pedestrian routes must be provided. Alternate routes must be detectable and must include accessibility features consistent with the features present in the pedestrian route that was closed. And if provided, devices used to channelize pedestrians through the new route must these must be detectable for users with long canes and for must be visible to persons having low vision. And but there is an exception to this. So if establishing or maintaining an alternate pedestrian route is not feasible, an alternate means of providing for pedestrians may be used, such as adding free bus service around the project or assigning someone the responsibility to assist persons with disabilities around the closure. And how often is that person there? <laughs> okay. 
So now that we've talked about uh, what makes the pedestrian access route accessible, we're going to talk some about some of the components that you might find in the pedestrian access route. The first being curb ramps and blended transitions. So the pedestrian access route at each pedestrian street crossing must be connected by a curb ramp, a blended transition, or a combination of those. The curb ramp excluding flared sides or the blended transition must be contained wholly within the street crossing served, sort of. <laughs> okay, so now we're gonna talk about the dreaded diagonal curb ramp in which obviously it's not wholly within the street crossing served. Okay, in PROAG, a single diagonal curb ramp is permitted to serve both street crossings and in alterations, it, uh, both street crossings like on one quarter, in alterations where existing physical constraints prevent one curb ramp for each crossing. Of course, the best practice is to have two curb ramps per corner with each curb ramp wholly within the street crossing that it serves. Okay, now we're gonna go into some technical, brief technical requirements for curb ramps. A, a curb ramp is a ramp that cuts through or is built up to the curb. The running slope of a curb ramp run is between 5% and 8.33%. Okay, now for blended transitions, a blended transition is a raised street crossing, a depressed corner, or other similar connection between the pedestrian access route at the level of the sidewalk and the level of the pedestrian street crossing. The running slope of a blended transition is 5% or less, 5% maximum. So basically the blended transition just has the, the running slope of the pedestrian access route, or it can only be as steep as the pedestrian access route is, is permitted to be. Okay, some common requirements for both curb ramps and blended transitions are that they must be 48 inches wide minimum, just like the pedestrian access route, and there must be a clear space at the bottom of the curb ramp or blended transition that is 48 minim inches minimum by 48 inches minimum, and that has to be outside of the parallel travel lane, so somebody's not sticking out into traffic when they're trying to get up on that curb ramp. Okay, and again, the, transition, the transitions between the curb ramp and the street or the, blended in the, or the blended transition in the street have to be flush. Okay, now moving on from curb ramps and blended transition, we go blended, blended transitions, we go naturally into detectable warnings. On pedestrian access routes, detectable warning surfaces indicate the boundary between pedestrian and vehicular routes where there is a flush rather than a curbed connection. The truncated domes must extend two feet minimum in the direction of travel, and they must contrast with the surrounding surface, either light on dark or dark on light. No particular color is specified for this contrast. And while we're at it, there is no requirement that the curb ramps contrast with their surrounding surfaces. We get this question a lot, and that probably would be a good idea, but there is no requirement in PROAG or in the ADA standards that there be contrast between the curb ramp and its surrounding surface. Okay, so where are detectable warnings required? They are required on curb ramps and blended transitions at street crossings for the full width of the curb ramp run or the blended transition. They're required at pedestrian refuge islands that are greater than six feet in the direction of travel. Since each pad of truncated domes must extend at least two feet in the direction of travel, a refuge island must go far enough in the direction of travel to allow separation between the detectable warnings encountered when approaching the refuge island and the detectable warnings encountered when leaving the refuge island. Or someone might think that she was 
she had gotten to the other side of the street instead of just getting to the other side of the pedestrian or the refuge island and then go walking out into the street and thinking she's on the sidewalk. So detectable warnings are also required at boarding platforms that are not protected by screens or guards. They're required at boarding and alighting areas at sidewalk or street level transit stops for rail, rail vehicles. And they are required at pedestrian at grade rail crossings that are not located within a street or highway. And now we're gonna talk about something totally different. We're gonna talk about protruding objects, which obviously is a subject of interest to people in our community. Objects with leading edges more than 27 and not more than 80 inches above the ground may not protrude more than four inches into the pedestrian circulation path. This applies to the entire pedestrian circulation path, not just to that pedestrian access route that we've been talking about. In fact, objects are not permitted to reduce the clear width of the pedestrian access route, so nothing can protrude into that width that is considered the pedestrian access route. And something that I forgot to mention when I was talking about the width of the pedestrian access route previously was that there's no requirement in PROAG or in the ADA standards that there be an obvious delineation of just what part of the sidewalk or anything else is in fact the access route. So there's got, if you have a 10 foot wide sidewalk, it's gotta have that pedestrian access route that's 48 inches wide minimum, but there's nothing there to tell you exactly where that is. <laughs> detectable or, or visible. Okay, so now we're going to talk about, so post-mounted objects must not protrude more than four inches beyond the leading edge of the base. So they might protrude more than four inches from the post that they're mounted on, but they can't, if they have a base, they actually, they, they, can't, protrude, they can't protrude more than four inches from the leading edge of that base. And where objects are mounted between posts and the clear distance between the posts is greater than 12 inches, the lowest edge of the object must be 27 inches maximum or 80 inches minimum above the ground. And if it's not, then they're going to have to put something below it to keep us from trying to go between those two posts and then finding out that there's something at chest height or head height that we're going to slam into. Okay, and related to protruding objects, we have requirements for vertical clearance, guardrails or other barriers to pedestrian travel must be provided wherever ever vertical clearance is less than 80 inches high anywhere along the, the pedestrian circulation path. And the leading edge of that guardrail or barrier must be located 27 inches maximum above the ground. So this 27 inches supposedly is the height of our cane sweep. That's something that people can debate later if they would like, but that is the thinking. And also I think part of where it comes from is that the required knee clearance under objects where wheelchairs have to approach and do a forward approach is 27 inches. So they don't want those to conflict. But anyway, and the, for this vertical clearance where we most find issues with that obviously is where you have stairs that people can walk under and so they have to have a barrier or a guardrail or something there to keep us from walking under that and then and, and hitting our head on one of those lower steps. Okay, now we're going to move into pedestrian street crossings. The most challenging and fun thing about being a pedestrian. Okay, a pedestrian street crossing is where it is intended for pedestrians to cross a street. That's simple, but not always. Okay, so what about getting across the street? Now we're going to talk about accessible pedestrian signals. Okay, but before we talk about the accessible pedestrian signals, I want to talk a little bit about the interval intervals for signalized crossings. So we have the walk interval, we have the pedestrian change interval, the buffer interval, and then we have the pedestrian clearance time. And we're gonna talk about each of these. Okay, first, the walk interval. So this is when the walking person is displayed when pedestrians are permitted to leave the curb or shoulder. 
pedestrians should be starting to cross the street during the walk interval. And MUTCD guidance says that the walk interval should last at least seven seconds to give pedestrians time to leave the curb or shoulder before the pedestrian clearance time begins. And we'll talk about that pedestrian clearance time in just a second. So basically, the walk interval is when people are supposed to start walking across the street. Okay, next we have the pedestrian change interval. And this is when the flashing upraised hand is displayed to symbolize don't walk, or as my less cautious sighted college friends used to say, don't walk, run. But we don't really recommend that. <laughs> but they, I really, they said that all the time. <laughs> okay. So if this interval is longer than seven seconds, a countdown showing how much time is left in the pedestrian change interval is required. And I just want to point out here that this countdown is required. So obviously they think that this is important information for sighted people to have, but it is not required to be accessible. And in fact, a DOT opinion letter that I saw recently almost made it seem like it was prohibited for it to be audible. But again, that's another topic for discussion. Okay, so now we're gonna move on to the buffer interval. interval. And this is when a steady upraised hand symbolizing don't walk is displayed for, and this has to be displayed for at least three seconds before the conflicting vehicle traffic is allowed to go. So that's seriously the don't walk. Do not walk when that buffer interval is going. Okay, and now finally, we're going to mention the pedestrian clearance time. And this is the time that it takes a pedestrian to walk from the top of the curb ramp to the opposite side of the street or to a median sufficient for waiting to get across the rest of the street. And this must be calculated based on a pedestrian walking 3.5 feet per second or less. And the sum of that pedestrian change interval and the buffer interval cannot be less than this. So the pedestrian clearance time has to be, but you can't, have the pedestrian time be less than it the pedestrian change interval and the buffer interval. Those two added together must give people at least time to get all the way across the street. The pedestrian clearance time is intended to allow pedestrians who started crossing at the very end of the walk interval to complete their crossing. Okay, now we're gonna move on finally to pedestrian access signals. So where pedestrian signals are provided at pedestrian street crossings, they must include accessible pedestrian signals and accessible pedestrian push buttons. So first we're going to talk about the location of these pedestrian, accessible pedestrian signal in relation to the intersection. The accessible pedestrian signal should be on the pedestrian access route, assuming that there is one. We wouldn't want to tell people they couldn't add a pedestrian access, an accessible pedestrian signal somewhere where there was not a pedestrian access route. But if there is one, it should certainly be on that. Okay, it should be between the curb ramp and the crosswalk line that is closest to the perpendicular traffic, but no more than five feet from that crosswalk line. It should be between 1.5 and six feet from the curb or shoulder, but definitely no more than 10 feet from the curb or shoulder. <laughs> okay, now we're gonna talk about the, the location and operation of the push button. So ADA requires that the push button be 15 inches minimum to 48 inches or four, no more than 15 inches minimum to 48 inches maximum above the sidewalk. But MUTCD guidance recommends that it be between 42 inches and 48 inches above the side, which, which of course would be better because if it were at 16 inches, it might be hard for us to find it. Okay. So no obstruction to, re there shouldn't be any obstructions to reach the button. There are some little bit of exceptions for a side reach, but basically we're, we shouldn't have to reach way over all kinds of obstacles like newspaper boxes to reach the button to activate the signal. 
the face of the push button should be parallel to the crossing that it serves. And there must be a tactile arrow with visual contrast on the button, and that has to be aligned parallel to the direction of travel for the crossing serve also. So obviously the button has to be parallel and it has to be on the button. It's gotta be parallel to that, to the direction of travel of the crossing that's served. Okay, so where two pedestrian push buttons are on the same corner of a signalized location, the push buttons should be separated by a distance of at least 10 feet. Where there are physical constraints that make this 10 foot separation impractical, the push buttons may be placed closer together or on the same pole. Okay, an accessible pedestrian push button must have a locator tone. The push button locator tones must have a duration of 0.15 seconds or less and must repeat at one second intervals. The push button locator tones must be intensity responsive to ambient sound and be audible six to 12 feet from the push button or to the building line, whichever is less. You can think about that one a little bit. <laughs> okay. Now at accessible pedestrian signal locations where push buttons are used, each push button must actuate both the walk interval and the accessible pedestrian signal or the accessible features of that signal. The infor information provided by an accessible pedestrian signal must clearly indicate which pedestrian crossing is served. Accessible pedestrian signals must have both an audible and vibrotactile walk indication. Vibrotactile walk indications must be provided by a tactile arrow on the push button, we kind of already mentioned, that vibrates during the walk interval. Accessible pedestrian signals must have an audible walk indication during the walk interval only. The audible walk indication must be audible from the beginning of the associated crosswalk. So if for some reason they put that pole way back, back, you still need to be able to hear that thing when you're at the top of the curb ramp waiting to cross. Okay, the accessible walk indication must have the same duration as the pedestrian walk signal, except when the pedestrian signal rests in walk, which basically means that it hangs out in the walk, the walk interval is long. So, the guide says that if the signal does rest and walk, the accessible walk indication should be at least seven seconds long. And then if it's longer than that, if it's still timing in the walk interval and the button is pushed again during the walk interval, the indication should be triggered. The accessible uh, walk indication should be triggered again. Following the audible walk indication, Accessible pedestrian signals must revert to the push button locator tone. Okay, where two accessible pedestrian signals are separated by a distance of at least 10 feet, the audible walk indication must be a percussive tone. The percussive tone must repeat at eight to 10 ticks per second. And the audible tone used as the percussive tone indications must consist of multiple frequencies with a dominant component of 880 hertz. Where two accessible pedestrian signals on one corner are not separated by at least 10 feet, the audible walk indication must be a speech walk message. Speech walk messages must provide a clear message that the walk interval is in effect, as well as to which crossing it applies. 
speak chalk messages at intersections having pedestrian phasing that is concurrent with vehicular phasing must be patterned after the model Broadway walk sign is on to cross Broadway. And speech walk messages at intersections having exclusive pedestrian phasing must be patterned after the model walk sign is on for all crossings. Speech message should only give information and not commands. Pedestrians must make decisions about crossing based on that information and the current traffic positions and other and, or current traffic conditions. In other words, they don't want to have the signal be responsible for you crossing when you weren't supposed to because you didn't pay attention to traffic. Okay, so why not a speech message all the time? Pedestrians may not know to which street the speech message refers if they don't know the street names. At least I think this is, I think I saw this in the MUTCD. So once again, they reiterate that you've got to make it really clear which uh, crossing this apply, the, the speech message is applying to. And you can also do that, of course, you've got to have that tactile arrow that's going parallel to the crossing. Maybe you've got some braille or raised characters on the housing. But even with all that, apparently the percussive tone is still the preference. So if they're at least 10 feet apart, it's got to be that percussive tone. Okay, now we're gonna talk about the extended push button press. Pedestrians may be provided with additional features such as increased walking time, audible beaconing, or a speech push button information message as the result of an extended push button press. If this option is used, a push button press of less than one second activates only the walk interval and the accessible walk indication. A push button press of one second or more activates the walk interval, the accessible walk indication, and whatever the additional features are. Okay, so as I mentioned, one of those features may be audible beaconing. Audible beaconing is the use of an audible signal in such a way that pedestrians with visual disabilities can home in on the signal that is located on the far end of the crosswalk as they cross the street. If audible beaconing is used, the volume of the push button locator tone during the pedestrian change interval must be increased and operated in one of the following ways. The louder locator tone comes from the far end of the crosswalk or the louder locator tone comes from both ends of the crosswalk or the louder locator tone comes from an additional speaker that is aimed at the center of the crosswalk. Okay, now just a few other requirements for the accessible pedestrian signal. Again, with the autom automatic volume adjustment in response to ambient traffic sound level must be provided up to a maximum volume of 100 decibels. Okay, under stop and go operation, accessible pedestrian signals must not be limited in operation by the time of day or the day of week which means if that signal is working for sighted people, we're supposed to still have the accessible features on. It shouldn't be turned off at night or on a Sunday or whatever. Okay, if the pedestrian clearance time is sufficient only to cross from the curb or shoulder of the street to, to a, a median that's of sufficient width for waiting, and if they're using accessible pedestrian signals at the beginning of that street crossing, they also have to provide an accessible pedestrian signal in the median. And a speech message is not required at times when the walk interval is not timing, but if it is provided, it must begin with the term wait, and the message does not have to repeat for the whole time that the entire time that the walk interval isn't timing. Okay, and now we're gonna move on to another favorite topic 
this will be a little briefer, roundabouts. Now, does everybody know what a roundabout is? Because this definition from the MUTCD is really yucky. And if I don't have to read it, I'll be real happy. <laughs> Do y'all feel like you know what a roundabout is? Thank you. Okay, so the requirements for roundabouts is where sidewalks are flush against the curb and pedestrian street crossing is not intended. A continuous and detectable edge treatment must be provided along the street side of the sidewalk. In other words, if there's a curb that goes right into the street, there has to be some kind of edge detection so we know, or edge treatment, so we know that that's not where you're actually supposed to be trying to cross this thing. Okay, and detectable warnings surfaces must not be used for that edge treatment because obviously when we see those, encounter those detectable warnings, we think that is where we're supposed to cross. And where chains, fencings, or railings are used for this edge treatment, they must have a bottom edge that is 15, yeah, that 15 inches maximum above the sidewalk. Okay, and another requirements for roundabouts. At roundabouts with multi-lane pedestrian street crossings, a pedestrian, a pedestrian activated signal must be provided for each multi-lane segment of each pedestrian street, cro street crossing, including, including the splitter island. And these signals must make it clear which pedestrian street crossing they're serving, and they must have accessible pedestrian signal features that we've been discussing. Now, Roundabouts with single lane approach and exit legs are not required to provide pedestrian activated signals. So if they have multi-lane legs, those are required. This is a little bit different in that with regular, in general with pedestrian street crossings, if they're signalized, those signals are required to have accessibility features. In the case of these multi-lane legs of roundabouts, we require them to be signalized and those signals must have the accessibility features. But this is only for the multi-lane legs, not for the single lane legs. And finally, the last topic, shared use paths. So a shared use path is a multi-use path designed primarily for use by bicyclists and pedestrians, including pedestrians with disabilities. And this and it's designed to be used for transportation and recreation purposes. Shared use paths are physically separated from motor vehicle traffic by an open space or a barrier. And they are either within the highway right of way or within an independent right of way. So now we're gonna go very briefly because there aren't as many as you would think for the requirements in PROAG for shared use paths. The entire width of the shared use path must comply with the requirements for pedestrian access routes. So the sidewalk only has to have 48 inches minimum, including the passing spaces that are 60 inches by 60, as that comply with the requirements for pedestrian access route, but the entire width of the shared use path must comply. And the width of curb ramp runs and blended transitions that are coming off of a shared use path must be equal to the width of that shared use path instead of just 48 inches wide minimum. And objects must not overhang or protrude into any portion of a shared use path at or below eight feet measured from the finished surface. That's it for shared use paths. That's all we have in, in the PRO Act for that. There's obviously the Federal Highway Administration is working on stuff for those and the OSHTO, I'm blanking on what that stands for. Um, the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. <laughs> that's what it stands for. I bet my coworkers wouldn't remember. Um, but that's, you know, they're working on stuff with shared use paths, although it really does seem like quite a bit about bicycle safety more than anything. But anyway, that is basically PROAG in a nutshell. So 
I guess I will pass it back to these guys to determine what we're going to do with questions. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was a, a lot of really great information. And it's now time for people to ask questions. I would like to start off with a question, and Becky may have one, and then we will open it up to other people. Just remember, I'm the ProAg apprentice. <laughs> <laughs> As you mentioned, we had comments, and we've been working on this since 2012, 2013. And I guess my question is, has have has anything been added along the way in the past 12, 10 years? Or are we right where we were back then with the comments? And then the other part of my question is, do you think this is going to be finalized in this year? Yes. 2022? Well, to answer your first, your second question first, I do really think that we're going to get this finalized by the fall. I mean, I'm sure we've been saying this for the past the past, uh, God, 13 years at least. If we don't get this finalized by the fall, I think my coworker who's been involved since t- 2000 will spontaneously combust. So I think we're going to do it. Now, uh, to answer your first question, you won't like the answer. I am not, I cannot say what's going to change, what's going to be added. I can't say anything until the rule is finalized. So I think that part of what, why you guys wanted me to come here maybe was you were hoping to get some of that stuff. And I really cannot, I can't say anything that would be strangled. <laughs> you know, it would totally, I cannot do it. So I am sorry to say that. Just to, just to clarify, I, I, yeah, secrets would be great. But what I, what I was sort of trying to ask was uh, most of this sounds very familiar to me. And I was just wondering if this has been sort of codified and sitting, waiting to go since those last comment periods, has, has anything been added over the last few years? All I can, well, obviously the guidelines or the provisions for uh, shared use paths have been added, which you okay. know about, but I will say this. We absolutely look at the comments. You may think that when you send comments for these things, now, you know, I can't guarantee that all of your comments will be, will be resolved in the way that you would most like. But we absolutely look at these comments. I mean, we have spreadsheets of these things and we look at them and, and we try to figure out whether we're going to incorporate, if we can incorporate. And if we're not going to incorporate, why? And we're going to ex- try to explain it in the preamble. So we do look at the comments, but that really is all I can say. So we definitely are looking at the comments and there could very well be changes based on the comments. So it's not like it's just been sitting there since 2011 or 2013 and it's just going to go, you know, part of the reason that it's taking so long to finalize it is that we kind of gave another look to the comments. You know, I think it was getting pretty close to ready to go in 2016. And then we kind of got shut down and couldn't do any regulations for about four years. And so we looked at the comments again and it's just, we really are trying to be responsive and but there are a lot of things that come into play you know even though we the access board makes these guidelines and from what I've been told ultimately the enforcing agencies have to adopt them but I'm not sure that that's really true because we have guidelines for outdoor developed areas that have been around since probably 2010 and the department of justice has not adopted those for the ADA standards. So, you know, they might have to adopt them eventually, but that eventually could be a long time. So when we're looking at this stuff, we really do want to get a pretty good level of buy-in from uh, the implementing or the, you know, the standard setting agency so that when we finalize it, we won't have to wait another five years for them to make them into enforceable standards. Becky doesn't have a question at this moment. Let's open it up to the audience. And since we first up is Pam Locke. I was interested in the audible signals where there's like two streets that could be crossed by that button. Like one might go straight ahead, the other might go to the left. Um, And you said something about discerning between the two. Um, how would they discern between the two? Because right now, at least, with the crossing I'm thinking of in my town, where there's an audible signal and it's four corners, um, there's no way to tell what direction, you know, there's no 
nothing I can feel that says cross straight ahead or cross to your left. Well, there should be, hopefully, a tactile arrow on the audible pedestrian signal that you're for the right street now, that you're going to cross. But I will check. But right now, I have not felt that or seen it. Okay. So that's supposed to go parallel in the direction of travel to, for the okay. street crossing that it, that it serves. Right. Um, now, supposedly, if the audible pedestrian signals or the accessible pedestrian signals on one corner are separated by at least 10 feet, they're supposed to have that percussive tone, and to people who know more than I do, apparently, that's supposed to be clearer, to, so you, you can associate it with the street crossing that it's supposed to be. Right. I don't know well, that I always, that I necessarily agree well, with thank that. Thank you for real, your question. It's real yeah. hard not to, 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 to have my access board hat on and my Sarah, the uh, serious urban pedestrian hat on. <laughs> and now we can take one live here in the room. Hi, this is Susan. Sarah, that was a great presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're um, too kind. My, my question is, I understand it goes into effect if it's, something's been retrofitted or changed. It applies to 508 and ADA Title II, so that would be government agencies. But what if a business is modifying a, a corner or making some changes to their site and they're putting in construction? Would it also apply in those circumstances? It's hard to say. Are you talking about if, like, a business is actually doing something with something that's technically in the public right-of-way or I would think that it would but those kind of jurisdictional things are really confusing and I would really wish that my coworker who's been working on this for 22 years were here that that's, that's almost beyond the pro-ag apprentice here um but yeah I would think that if they're you're you're saying that they're doing what like what kind of an alteration would you would are you talking about I was just thinking like if they're putting a a building on a new corner and they have to tear up the sidewalk or uh putting a telephone pole yeah yeah that's that's gonna it's gonna apply to that for sure you know if they're tearing it up and i think if they have if they're replacing it they're gonna have to to do to make it it accessible to the to the degree that they can if they're like regrading the sidewalk they might have to make the slope more compliant um so yeah if they're if they're doing something, well, that, they wouldn't be doing something with street crossing. But apparently, if you're doing something in the street crossing, you have to make the curb ramps. So, so yeah, I would think so. But it it gets really dicey when you're kind of getting these cross jurisdictions. Another Sorry, good, that's not a very good answer. <laughs> oh, that's a good answer. You can talk. Um, and how about another Zoom question? Yes. Next up is Ted Chitenden. Thank you. I was I was also very impressed with the detail. Of, of the uh, presentation. I thank you for that. Um, the, I am concerned. Um, I think that a lot of this, if it were to be adopted, would wind up in the courts, particularly things like the loud, uh, having the signals on all the time, day or night. I think that's going to wind up as a court issue. Um, I'm also curious about that grading stuff, even though it wouldn't really affect me. Um, but I have been, I live in Phoenix now, but I was born in Los Angeles, a little town called Tahunga suburb. And I also um, um, have been to San Francisco. Both of this, both that suburb and San Francisco had uh, streets that were um, basically very steep hill grades. And I would be surprised if you had this, you had these limited grade requirements on uh, for um, uh, pedestrian, accessible pedestrian, that uh, many of their streets actually could be accessible, accessible pedestrian pathways could be made on many of their streets just because of the grades of the hills. And I'm wondering, if, and I'm wondering if there were exceptions for places like that where. Um, where, in fact, the streets were built on hills. Well, remember that the running slope of a, of a sidewalk or a route that's adjacent to the a street or highway can have the running slope as steep as that that's been a, the running slope that's been established for that street or highway. So you're going to have some some very steep pedestrian access routes in the public right of way because they're going to be able to go with the grade of the road. 
What's really confusing to me sometimes is when it's not within the grade of the road, but it's still in a hilly place. And we are saying that it has to be 5%. And we say that in the, in the, um, in the ADA as well. I mean, that's an ADA requirement that, that it has to have, the accessible route has to have a running slope of maximum 5%. We don't even have an exception in there for the, the grade of the road. Um, so, you know, my, and my coworker says, well, we're not expecting them to make the earth flat, but I'm not really sure how we're not sometimes because those, I hate it when somebody asks me those questions on the TA line, the technical assistance line, because I'm just like, oh, what can you do? <laughs> Um, I mean, I, you know, I went to school in the University of Georgia, which isn't even a mountainy place, but it was very hilly. And I'm like the, the routes between the buildings that weren't necessarily within the street grade. How I don't I don't know how um, you can really do that. But that that is technically the expectation. It really is for new construction. If if, if there's new construction, they're really expecting people to, to regrade some things. If there are alterations, you kind of were dealing with some stuff that was built a long time ago, and there's really not that much that's going to be done. So it's well, kind of a follow-up question to that. Then, I mean, yeah, we can't make the world flat. We can't take away mountains. And this is about things that we build, not the way the earth is, right? So Right. <laughs> but we're building them on the earth, so it gets yeah. to be tricky. And there was something else that he said that I wanted to comment yeah, I know. on. I and I now respond to it. I, oh, I remember it was about lawsuits and it's oh, yeah. if people, yeah. you know, if, if and I did want to point out something about that. That part of the problem is that people aren't doing the the accessible pedestrian signals correctly to begin with. When they first put them in, maybe they have them up full volume, which is really, really loud. So they don't have to be that loud. They, you know, they really only have to be heard, you know, 12 to six feet from the, the signal or from the building line, if that's closer. And uh, I just had another thing that went right out of my head. So it shouldn't this, bother people but, in their apartments. And, and of course, and now hopefully we're going to get more into like passive detection where the things will start beeping if somebody just comes by as opposed to, to, um, to having them go all the time. But the problem is, is they start them out really loud and then somebody complains and they turn them down really, really low. So I know of some, some in Virginia where you have to be pretty much two feet from the pole to hear that locator tone. You really cannot hear it. And as far as I'm concerned, if there's traffic, you can barely hear the, the walk indication because they've gotten them turned down so low. There has to be some balance but at least people should start out complying with what the, the requirements are. And these are requirements, you know, these, this is stuff that's in the MUTCD as well. It's not just PROAG. All that comes from referencing the Manual for Uniform Traffic Control Devices. You have to get the phone number of your favorite traffic engineer and make them come fix them. That's what we do in Kansas City. Can we have another um, in-person question? Yeah, they're supposed to be, they're adjust to ambient sound. They are, which I don't know. I don't know if I've heard one that does or not. Hello. Um, I have two questions. One was a follow-up to an earlier question about how businesses <laughs> and how they might interfere with the pedestrian path pathway, uh, specifically to restaurants who provide outdoor patio seating. How will that affect them, you know, when they have that, that and it significantly narrows that pathway? That's my first question. Then my uh, question that I had initially interest is regarding the pedestrian signals, uh, the ones that have the extended time features, is there going to be a universal design for those signals so that when a, a, a person who is visually impaired or blind goes to find out about that signal, that they'll know that this has that feature, or are we just going to have to push the button, hold it to see if it includes those features? Thank you. That is a very good question. Right now, we certainly don't have anything like that. In fact, when I was really studying hard to make this presentation, my first thought was, have I ever done an extended push button press and gotten an extended time to cross? I didn't know it. Nothing told me that I would get it to extended time. <laughs> so right now, there's really nothing that, that makes that clear. And hopefully, you know, at some point we could get some kind of universal design for that, but there certainly isn't anything for it now. As to your question about the streeteries, the streeteries, that, that's what they, I don't know if they call them that everywhere, where they have the, the restaurant, the, the restaurants going and taking up more and more of the sidewalk or even some of the street. They 
are not supposed to be impeding the width of the accessible route. And we actually had a restaurant right near where I work where they had extended their railing out to the point where there probably wasn't even 36 inch accessible route, which is what's required for the ADA. And we called the DC department of transportation and got them to move it in. It was just too far. It was, it was, it was impeding the accessible route. So technically they're not supposed to be doing that. Now, I guess there's an interesting question as to whether if, if the route was accessible at all to beforehand, because I live on Capitol Hill where I don't know that any of the sidewalks comply as accessible or pedestrian access routes because of bad changes in level and surface issues, you know? Um, so I don't know if, but I still think I would definitely try if you have an issue like that, I would definitely get in touch with your department of transportation and say that this thing is impeding the accessible route. Okay, I think it's time for our next Zoom question. Okay, Charlene Ornelas. Mine is if there's a, um, to do with the public or um, mixed use on um, the public right of way on crossing streets, the newest thing to do is to have um, bus stops on the far side of a um, crosswalk or on a street crossing. So in order to catch a bus, I have to cross the bicycle path to get to the mm -hmm. bus. I'm wondering if there is anything to delineate that and mark it and any way to protect me from the bicycles who are not paying attention. Thank you. All I know is that transportation departments are trying, some of them at least, are trying to figure out how to do that. And that's, we really don't have any good, I don't know if anybody's doing any research on it, but I'm not even sure what the best way to handle that is. Maybe some of you people that have been on this committee for a while would have a good answer to that because it, it, it is a problem and it's not, it certainly hasn't been addressed in the PROAG. And it's still new enough that I don't know that the research is very good to say, what is the best way to, to let a blind person know that they're going to be crossing something like that? And my thing about that is if they do come up with something, how are they going to educate us that, that, that we need to, that we're going to experience a different type of detectable texture or something like that? How do we know? Uh, if they come up with something like that, there's got to be some kind of good education to let you know how, if there is an accessible way that you're supposed to be able to tell what's going on, how do you know it? I believe this is something that BZ Benson will be addressing tomorrow afternoon. There is some research taking place, and this is certainly being talked about everywhere. So join us tomorrow afternoon, and uh, you come hear what BZ yeah, has to I'm, say. I'm eager to hear what she has to say about yes. it. Yes, and we, we have time for another question from the room. Okay, I don't see anybody else, but I have Nobody one. Out here? Uh, this is Michael Byington, and my question, I've actually got two, but I have a roundabout question for oh, you, no. first of all. I believe you said that in the case of two lane or more roundabout entries into the turning circle that the pedestrian that the pedestrian crossways have to be signalized is that correct That is correct Okay now if that's the case and you've got a protected space between the uh, incoming and outgoing legs in each direction, which quite often that is the um, standard structure of those kind of roundabouts. Does this mean that they are actually going to be locating, uh, if there are two lanes or more in all of the entrances, eight signals around those uh, roundabouts, or is there going to be one signal that's going to cover the uh, incoming and outgoing traffic from each leg um, which would necessitate a pedestrian simply crossing across one set of detectable warnings, crossing the uh, normally considered safe space between the uh, incoming and outgoing lanes of, 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 of traffic, and then crossing the other. So I guess it boils down to, and this is really a hard question to ask. It's a I, really hard question to answer. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I honestly, 
I, you people that live in places where there are roundabouts, and I think you do mobile O and M, don't you, Michael? So, I, I'm so, a comms. Yeah. So I'm you, 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 don't, you don't have a lot of choice about having to deal with these things. But I will do anything to avoid roundabouts. I don't care how accessible they well, make them. Actually, They're a couple so of years confusing. ago, I, I did a workshop for all the comms in Kansas on how to cross roundabouts because I served a high school that had one right in front of the damn place. So. Uh, uh, it, it really technically is an interesting issue. I don't see practically how pedestrian signals are going to be of any help in a two-lane crossing like that. Yes, you need something, but it's, I'm just not picturing how that could work. Uh, oh, I don't know. Call my coworker, Scott Windley, and ask him that question. <laughs> um, my other question is about uh, ambient noise sensors on the pedestrian signals. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of signals that are being installed have a range of volume, which it can go to what lows and highs are, depending on the ambient noise in the area, because sometimes there's more traffic and other sounds. And they're supposed to be doing that. They're supposed to be adjustment resp or responsive well, to, to and the Just ambient. so you Two know, we have five minutes that. left. The first question being, um, okay, uh, does... Is there maximum and minimum levels of volume that are uh, in the PROAG currently? And secondly, is there anything about the reliability factors of those devices? Because I have seen them all basically go out of whack more often than just about any other uh, mobility uh, signal out there. Well, I'm not sure. I'd have to look in PROAG to see if we have the whole maintenance of accessible features thing like you do for the ADA. Um, which is always a fallback. They're not maintaining the accessible features. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, I mean, all I know is that there's the maximum, you know, they can they'd be responsive up to a maximum of 100, 100 decibels. I don't know of a minimum. Um, like and I they, said, I'm the apprentice here. So they do go out of whack. And, uh, you know, the advice, and we'll be talking about this more tomorrow as well, you all need to make friends with your traffic engineer. And any time a signal is malfunctioning, you need to have handy at your fingertips, something in your iPhone where you can call and say, come out and fix this signal. In Kansas City, we've got them trained. They come out within 48 hours and fix those signals. Oh, that's really good. So we're, we're down under five minutes now. And on behalf of both the pedestrian environmental access and transportation committees, we really would like to thank you, Sarah Presley, for coming and educating us and inspiring us and giving us a little hope. And I do want to thank Janelle and the Zoom team and ACB Media and Becky Davidson and our, who's our mic runner? Michael Bynton. Michael, you were doing it. And thank you, everybody.